Blog Talk Radio. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, no matter where you're listening, around the world, this is Sedona Talk Radio. And hello, hello everyone out there in the big, big world. This is Helena, Helena Steiner-Hornstein speaking to you again. And you know, today on March the 16th, I think I'm going to make a a fantastic announcement. Yes, I have a great guest, but he is not the announcement I'm going to make first. I'm going to tell you something that I've been going through during months and months now, and that is my name. Of course, my name is my real name, Helena Steiner-Hornstein. And I even have another name in my passport, which is from one of my earlier husbands. And that's legal, and my name, Steiner Hornstein, is also legal. But now, when I have been speaking out there, it was something that kind of stopped me when I worked. And I noticed my frequency, my vibration, my spirituality has kind of increased recently. And I feel much more in tune now than when I did a year ago or two years ago or ten years ago. It's like I'm up on a new level. And with that, it's very hard to say that name that I've been using because that name belonged to, you know, my, you know, some man <laughs> earlier, my father and, and so on. And it's not been me. So now I've taken back my Christian, you know, my baptized names, which is Helena Margareta, Helena Margareta. And I'm going to call myself just that. And, you know, it feels so good and so soft. <laughs> And um, I've been speaking to friends, and everyone says, oh, that's the one you really are. It feels like you. It's not so harsh. It comes on much softer than the other name. So I'm going to call myself Helena Margareta from now on when I talk to you. So that was the big announcement. And my other announcement is, of course, I have a guest with me today. And if you recall, he was with us about a year ago, and he said it was 13 months, I believe. And uh, he, um, his name is Rick Morgan. Hello, Rick. Hi, I thought you were going to say you were going to call yourself Bob Smith. <laughs> yeah, that would really be me. <laughs> no, but it's very important how you feel. And I remember when I met you the first time, I spelled your name wrong. I spelled it instead of Rick R-I-C, I spelled it R-I-C-K. And you commented on that and said, no, you have to correct it. So our names are important, aren't they? Well, not only that, because I'm Rick, R-I-C, that is my legal name. That is my birth name. And everybody thinks I'm Richard. But I never was a Richard. My name has always been Rick Morgan, and I have no middle name. So it has been a problem all of my life on, you know, what is my proper real name. But my yeah. passport says Rick Morgan. Yeah. And how do they take it when you don't have a middle name, you know, with the authorities and the passport people? Oh, in people? school, it was a real problem in school. They kept saying, well, everybody has a, a middle name. Now, what's your middle name? Yeah. <laughs> I, I yeah, we that. have to be like everybody, don't we? That's how Actually, the system is built up. Actually, when I go back and think about it now, I like my name. Like you like your new name. I like my name because it's short. It's easy. People remember it. And the spelling was unique at one time. R-I-C was unique. But they looked down in the crib, and there was this thing laying there, and Bob had been taken that day, so they thought, well, why not Rick, R-I-C? Yeah, that's, that's uh, and it, it suits you, and it, that's you, you, you. So we're going to speak a little bit about uh, humanity. And I thought, you know, shall I speak about Haiti or shall I speak about because you were in Haiti. We've heard so much about Haiti and all the problems they have over there. And I'd like to speak more about humanity and what we can do to help humanity and what you can do out there to help yourself. And uh, and I notice the ones, the one times or the times when I have more listeners is always when you get some kind of benefit. And that is what we're going to give you today, some kind of benefit, how you can make your life a more fulfilled life. So you went to Haiti, 
And Rick, uh, tell me, you are a chaplain. And I said that to someone yesterday. Yeah, he's a chaplain. And she looked at me and said, what is a chaplain? <laughs> and can you explain to me what you do? Well, uh, the difference between a chaplain and a minister is actually harder to become a chaplain than it is to become ordained as a minister because you have to do two things that ministers, as a rule, don't have to do in the training process. One is that as a chaplain, you take on the obligation, no matter what your personal beliefs are, you take on the obligation to serve people of all religions, all denominations, so that if you are a chaplain, and someone comes up to you and says, I'd like to get married in their Islamic or the Jewish or uh, Buddhist or whatever, you have to know how to do that. There are books that help us. There are guidebooks that help chaplains to do that. But the other thing is that a chaplain has to do that a minister doesn't have to do, and in many cases don't, is you have to take courses in counseling. You have to be there to listen to people to guide them, to counsel them, and to keep in mind what their religious beliefs are. So you have to have a real good understanding of the various world religions and what they believe, and then you have to kind of uh, be able to guide people uh, when they come for counseling or they need some help uh, so that you don't violate their religious beliefs. Now, I take a very middle ground on all of it. Some people ask me, what is your religion? And I say, I'm none of them, and I am all of them. So That's I don't, a very good answer, yeah. I don't profess to believe in any one particular religion. I don't belong to a church. I don't um, uh, go to uh, classes or anything for a particular faith. But if you, had to, if you had to label me, if it was just absolutely necessary that you label me, I would consider myself both uh, Quaker and Baha'i. I like both oh. of those. And yeah. so okay. um, that they, they're very similar, interestingly enough. So uh, I guess I'm a Quaker Baha'i. Okay. You know, religions, in a way, they all come from the same source. And then, of course, various traditions have changed uh, that into into religion. Now let's see here. So we go back a, a little bit now to the time when we had the big earthquake in Haiti. And what was your feeling? Did you just rush off and go to Haiti to help them out? Or what did you do? How come you went there? Well, I was called uh, by the U.S. military to go serve as a volunteer chaplain. All of the branches of the military right now have a shortage of chaplains. So they, from time to time, when they're going to enter a place that isn't extremely dangerous per se, they will ask for volunteers to cover those kinds of areas so that chaplains can, uh, you know, ordained chaplains with a military background and so forth can then go to the more dangerous kinds of places and serve. So I got yeah. a phone call. Um, I don't know how the evolution happened before it got to me. But I got a phone call asking me to go, and I had 12 hours to prepare. And, That's not very uh, easy. And, what I, and I'm going fast here. Uh, what, um, you are in a wheelchair, aren't you? Yes. Well, yeah. not and then, full time, but. Not full time, but you use it a lot. So here you have to prepare yourself within hours to go to this part of the world, and you are. Uh, a, a, Often in a wheelchair, you, you move around when you have to right. in a wheelchair. Right. But they no, gave so me an aide de camp. Uh, they gave me a, a, a young off, a, a, not an officer, a young man who took care of me, basically. He was my responsibility 23 hours a day. And oh. he would push me where I needed to go and do errands for me and those kinds of things. But we shared a tent, too. So he was called my aide de camp is the phrase that. Uh, oh, I that see. Well, that's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So they they did. So so what happened? You you came in a plane, in a regular plane, or in a military plane to Haiti? I, I flew to uh, Miami on a regular plane, uh, and then I flew from Miami to Haiti with a, a military plane full of officers and and everything. And it was backed up. We were backed up there for three days. We couldn't in get Miami? in because of, uh, no uh, Haiti. Oh Haiti, the, okay. Going in. The flight's going in. They only have one runway in Haiti. And yeah. It's a short runway, too. 
So yeah. uh, we had to wait our turn, in essence. And finally, the, you know, the word came that we were going, and so we boarded a Coast Guard plane, in my case. Uh, I was came home back to Miami on an Army plane and then uh, flew back home commercially. But the government yeah. paid for all of that. I didn't have to pay for anything. Yeah, but they didn't really pay you when you were there, did you? That's a, no, I was a because volunteer. you volunteered. Yeah. So uh, I thought that was so fantastic of you to go out there and, and do this. And what your, was your first impression when you landed in Haiti and you got off the plane and what you saw? My first impression? Oh, God, yes. it is so hot here. <laughs> I <did>. <laughs> <laughs> And it, and it was, and it was the whole time we were there. Temperatures of like 105 and 99.9 really? humidity. Really? Oh, it was ungodly. And um, uh, one I'm of the surprised that, because, you know, Miami isn't that far away, and we didn't have that heat. It was actually quite cool here in Miami during that it was, time. Uh, it was miserable there. It was terrible. But my first impression was uh, they were beginning to set up the military base. See, I was more or less restricted to the military base that was being set up out at the airport, which is northwest of the city. The epicenter of the earthquake, uh, I was mistaken, like a lot of other people were, that it had happened out in the Caribbean Sea or the Atlantic Ocean. And that's not true. It happened right in the heart of uh, downtown Port-au-Prince. So that's yeah, why it was... I thought it was out in the ocean and that the effects were coming into Haiti. But actually, no. you mean the actual center was right in Port-au-Prince? Right in the center of the city. So that, that has, uh, that's a contribution to the uh, devastation that we saw. The first day that I was there, they loaded up uh, a bunch of uh, volunteers and civilians and others that were going to be serving, and they took us out with a security patrol to show us the city. And I can't even come up with the words. I'm, uh, to tell you how devastating it was. It was just awful. And by that time, it was four days after the, the earthquake had happened. And wow. bodies were laying in the street decomposing. People were uh, sick. People were hurt. Uh, what they told us to do before we uh, got on the truck was to uh, shove toothpaste up our nose. Take some toothpaste, put it on your finger, and shove it up your nose. Because putting oh. perfume or cologne or anything on a mask wasn't going to mask the smell of decomposing bodies. Yeah. But toothpaste yeah. up your nose would. And that, of course that's with the, very interesting, yeah. And with the heat that would melt, so you'd take your toothpaste with you, you know. It's to yeah. bring your tube with you because you're gonna have to, you know, do that again. But it was devastation. Uh, the only building that I remember seeing standing without any damage at all was the American Embassy. Everything else that we saw was was uh, damaged, but we wa we were going by a man who was beaten up by a, a group of young uh, Haitian men, and I think they. Why was it? Why do you think people would beat each other up during this kind of time? Well, first of all, shock. Second of yeah. all, people wanted food and water. I don't know. Maybe he had some food. Maybe he had some water. I don't know the situation. I just know uh, we watched him being killed. And I said to somebody, aren't we going to do something to help him? And they said, if we stop to help him, we could be in trouble. They could come after us. And yeah. so we just had to continue on. Um, but they have these gangs in Haiti anyway that are, yeah, are they, do. Um, they go around and, and kill and maim and hurt to steal. Uh, one is to get stuff for themselves. And second of all is to put stuff on the black market and try to sell it. So we would see these groups of young men, young women too, just standing around. Uh, they weren't doing anything to... They wouldn't help anything. They would just they stand there. They would just stand there. So yeah. uh, I learned later that, uh, and I don't mean to generalize uh, when I say this, but it's the way it was explained to me is that Haitians don't have much of a work ethic, not like the United States and other Western cultures uh, do. Mm -hmm. And um, they live in such crowded, such dismal uh, existence anyway. I mean, yeah, I, I, I was told by one man that he lived in a tent with 20 people. That yeah. 20 people. 
So, um, and that's you mean all normally the time. or not but normally. after the quake? Normally. Normally, okay. He, he lived with, uh, in a shanty with 20 members of his family uh, yeah. all of the time. Um, yeah. Because that's all they can, you know, they can afford. So, uh, and they, it was funny that Helena, when we um, went to leave, I had to have surgery on the, uh, the Navy uh, ship before I could leave Haiti. I had uh, to have a toe surgery done. Yeah, I saw your picture of your toe. <laughs> you sent me an email. Send <laughs> <laughs> that to everybody. I said, see, see what happens when you go to Haiti? Yeah. But anyway, um, the day before I had to go for surgery, they took us back through Port-au-Prince, loaded us back up on a truck with a security uh, group, and took us back through Port-au-Prince. And the very disappointing part of it was nothing had changed. It was still the same rubble, still the same things. The bodies were missing. Most of them had been, the ones that were laying out on the street had been picked up and put in mass graves. But the stench of decaying bodies was still very much in evidence because there's bodies in the, in the rubble. So yeah, um, uh, nothing had changed in 50 days. It was, it was really amazing to me that they were going along with front loaders and, and picking up stuff in front loaders and dropping it into um, dump trucks dump trucks. Now, I don't know where they were taking it, but wherever this rubble was going, if there were bodies or anything of value in there, it went in the truck and went out. Um, yeah. One of the major officers said to me one day, uh, just uh, close to the end, that they had buried an estimated, and that's a key word is estimated, because they didn't know for sure, 250,000 people in mass graves. And he that's said, a lot I would, of people, my God, yes. A lot of people. But he said, you know, before it's over, uh, because they won't account for those bodies that are in the rubble that they're just picking up, he said, I wouldn't, I wouldn't doubt that when it's all over, it'll be a half a million people. Yeah. Yeah, that's scary. And uh, I have been to Haiti and uh, before, of course, not during this particular ordeal, but I've been to Haiti and... Uh, it was terrible then, and as you say, you had this man who lived before the earthquake in a tent with 20 of his family members. Well, I saw that, you know, when I saw those little shacks where people lived just in, in a few square feet together with a whole family. And another thing that hit me was I never saw any pets, you know, I never saw any dogs in the street or cats or anything, which you usually do wherever you go, in, if it's slums or what, you see some animals. But I didn't see any here, and I was wondering, it was so poor they couldn't even have animals. Uh, did you see any animals around? I mean, I saw a few dogs. I never saw a cat. I saw a few dogs, but probably they were eating those animals. They, this is what I think they were doing even before the quake, you know, that they yes, were eating uh -huh. the animals, and yeah. they just didn't have uh, enough food for that. And, of course, yeah. I saw also the big, nice homes where the rich people lived, and they had the, the dogs and they have everything else. But uh -huh. the difference was so incredible. And then I remember the stench was already in Port-au-Prince before the quake, you know. It was just right. smelly and was known for that smell. But now with the dead decomposing bodies must have been awful, awful. Oh, it's just, it just overwhelmed you. And it, and it was uh, any time you thought you might be leaving the, the uh, base, you, you shoved your tube of toothpaste in your pocket because yeah. you just didn't know. Uh, I mean, like I said, I was only in Port-au-Prince itself twice. I flew yeah. over... Uh, the area, and then we flew into the Dominican. And you know the the difference between the Dominican and Haiti is just like night and day. I uh, know, I the, know. The Dominican is a very affluent country and yes. uh, seems to have um, you know modern technologies. Uh, you can see people walking around with cell phones and um, oh yes, nice it's, cars it's a modern and, country. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. And it's funny that it's here like you Miami, have... Miami, you know, with the, with the beach and everything else there, too. Right. It's, 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 you have the high-rises, yes. Right. So it's like, you know, two countries sharing an island, and the difference between them is, is amazing. So that gives you an idea of the corruption in Haiti, because we, as Americans and the rest of the world, have been uh, feeding and clothing and, and 
giving to the Haitian people for so long that they no longer have a work ethic. Um, and those who do have a job guard them very jealously and pass them, along, that, to yeah. pass them along to another family member. If you were a maid in a hotel and you oh. retire or you die, it goes to another member of your family. It doesn't, you know, there's no hiring process. Oh, so, that's uh, interesting. Yeah, that's how guarded uh, the the work is. So yeah. uh, we just didn't see people out uh, doing anything. I mean, there was just piles and piles and piles of rubble and a lot of people walking around, a lot of people sitting, but nobody doing anything. And, and my one thought is, thank you, God, that I'm an American because if anything like that happened here in the United States, gosh, even people in wheelchairs like me would be out there digging with your fingernails to try to look for people to try to help. And yeah. these people are sitting around waiting for something to happen. And they don't realize yeah. that they are the ones that have to make it happen. You know, this is something about human behavior that uh, these people have never been taught initiative, evidently. And that's, you know, that you have to take action. And that is something that we all know, that nothing will happen unless you yourself take the action. And uh, I have, when I went to Haiti, uh, one of the times, I was there to look for a factory, actually. I was manufacturing dolls at the time. (laughs) And um, I looked around, and I walked around everywhere and, and was driven around to look for factory and factories that would accept to make my dolls. And I saw actually factory workers who sat there in their free time at night and would do the extra work. And they didn't look at, you know, the clock. They would sit there forever and work. And in the end, I decided to take this work to the Dominican Republic instead, where they had a totally different setup. But I was amazed at the ones who really worked, how they did work well. And if they don't have jobs there, of course, for those people, they come to America. And there are lots of good Haitians in in the Miami area, and they they get money and they send their kids to college, and they're good people. But then you have those other people who are not willing to to take the initiative. And I'm sure you as a chaplain can give some kind of explanation uh, why this is so. Well, I think, as I said before, I think the world, not just America, has done the Haitians a disservice by taking care of them, by, yeah. you know, sending in so much aid and, and food. And, I mean, if if I were getting uh, even just a little bit to eat um, for free every day of my life, uh, I wouldn't work. I mean, you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't do anything. I think that's human nature. You You try to get away with, as much as you can by doing as little as you can. And yeah. I think that that's, a, that's something we have taught the whole nation of Haiti over a period of time. And it's not just Americans there. I mean, there are people from other nations who are doing aid work in Haiti. Um, and came, came to help was it, the biggest one besides the United States was Israel. And then uh, Sweden had sent some uh, rescue workers and uh, there were a lot of people on the ground who weren't Americans. It wasn't just an American job. No, of course, there so, were people from everywhere, yeah. Oh, you know, that's why we couldn't get into the airport, because there were so many planes <laughs> coming from so many places, yeah. you know. So um, the fact was is that these were people who had experience and thought they could do something. But it, it, they weren't there that long. Many of them only stayed a week or two or three, and then they were gone. Uh, and one of the reasons, uh, like the uh, Swedish uh, rescue workers were gone, was the government said, "Oh, that's good enough. Yeah, you can go home now." So oh, you know really? they were willing. We have many to, Swedish now, listeners, by the way, so they would like to. They, they probably enjoy to hear that. And uh, did you hear more about the Swedish res- rescue workers? Uh, we, we saw them a couple of times. They came on our base, um, but it was like the, the Haitian government saying, "Well." You know, you've dusted that table enough. Uh, you can go. You can go back home because you've cleaned up a little bit, or you've been able to help. We don't need you anymore. And this was the impression that everybody got about the situation. I mean, the, the government was getting to the point that they were saying to, to people who had come to help in a very rude way. I guess you can go home now. 
We don't need That's to hear terrible. that. That's terrible. You know, I don't think people have known that, and they hear it now in this show. But I think that's awful that it should have to be that way. Why could that be? They, they didn't want people to come and help them? Or did they want to take their own control some way or the other? Or what do you think? I mean, that's the a, you're you're asking me a lot of questions that, you know, yeah. sitting on a base, uh, counseling people, you know, I, I'm not in the midst of it, and I really can't answer that. No. The only thing that I could figure was, well, for example, let me give you an example. An aid plane had landed, and I don't remember what country it was, but the Haitian government and uh, government officials are very, very corrupt. And I think everybody knows that. I'm not saying everybody. something that, you know, that nobody knows. But this aid plane, had, and it was a large aid plane full of food and water and medical supplies and equipment and so forth. And the manager of the airport had finally shown up and was demanding $1,000 per plane for them to land. And God. the people the people who had just landed the plane full of all of this stuff said, we're not paying that. And he said, well, yeah. if you're not paying that, then you can turn around and leave. And they did. So this whole plane load of food and water and aid was gone because they would not pay the, the fee that this guy was going to obviously put in his pocket. And he tried to extort money out of everybody that landed the plane there after that. And nobody tried to stop him. Nobody said, don't do that or anything. He finally, curiously enough, um, disappeared after about a week of that. He just disappeared. So I don't know what happened to him, but he wasn't there after a while. Okay, maybe we shouldn't ask questions. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes it's not, a, it's not a good idea to ask, but he was suddenly no. <laughs> gone. And it's like, hmm, yeah. I wonder what okay, happened but, to him. Yeah. <laughs> But, you know, this is so shocking uh, that this would happen. And I haven't seen that in the papers that they would try to take bribes. Oh, well, you have to remember that there was only three or four uh, print reporters on the ground. At first, there was a lot of television people. When we got there, all of the major networks from around the world had TV people on the ground. But after about a week, they left. And so the print journalists, uh, sort of evaporated too. And somebody from the New York Times, the Los Angeles Times, the Washington Post, I think somebody from one of the London papers and somebody from one of the Japanese newspapers were still around. But there wasn't a lot to uh, of reporters. But see, there's so many stories that you just can't cover them all. And um, see, for the most part, uh, what a lot of people don't realize is the majority of the Americans are gone. It has never been mentioned on television that the Americans left the day after I left. Uh, the only thing that I've seen is about the hospital ship leaving and going back to Baltimore, but the land troops, the paratroopers that I was with and stuff like that, they left the next day. And it never has been talked about on television, and I've never seen anything in any of the wire service stories. They're just gone. Yeah. yeah. And... Uh, so there's so many stories and so many things to to look at and report on. They just, I guess they can't cover everything. So uh, I don't know how many people live in Haiti. There must be, uh, do you know the population of Haiti? The population of Port-au-Prince is about 2 million, or was, before the earthquake. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, as far as the country goes, I wouldn't say there's probably another million. So maybe three, three and a half million, I'm guessing. Yeah. For a small space also. Yeah, it's plus, it, you know, there is a countryside. There is farming. There is a, a life outside of Port-au-Prince. It's not just tourists. And so um, there were parts of, of Haiti that didn't receive any help for a long time because, you know, we didn't go out there. We didn't, we didn't go out to these places that these little farm communities and stuff. And one, now this is hearsay, so I can't say for sure, but this one little village, everybody had died uh, because there's no water, no food, yeah, yeah. and uh, nobody had gotten out to them. So they say that once they got out there, there was like one or two people in this little village of people that were farmers had died. Everybody else had died. And they took this whole truckload of stuff out there, and there was nobody there. But it wasn't. Yeah. So you have you have to also understand out in the countryside, 
the earthquake wasn't felt as bad as it had been in the city. And, of course, Port-au-Prince, for people who don't know the geography of it, Port-au-Prince is not far from the Dominican border. And yet, once you crossed the Dominican border, it's like nothing happened. It it didn't have any impact on, on the Dominican. It was really strange because you'd fly over Port-au-Prince and, and the surrounding communities, but the, the second you got over the, the border between the two countries, it's like nothing had happened. And I don't know it, why. It's they, amazing. Yeah, it's, it's almost uh, spooky when you think about it. And you, on one cell... One side you have through hell, and on this um, other side it must be like paradise. Yeah, it, was, it was like the earthquake stopped at the border or something. Yeah, that's odd. That's really it odd. It is odd. Yeah. Yeah. I expected uh, a lot of damage to you know when we flew over to the Dominican. I expected to see a lot of damage, and I didn't see any. And we were in helicopters, so we were pretty low down. We weren't high up in a plane. Yeah. And there was very people were just driving around in their cars and going it's about amazing. their daily business. Yeah, because this, nothing happened. It's it's amazing. This was a very strong quake, and that it didn't spread over to just you know a few miles over to the other country. That is strange. It went now, west. In, yeah. It, it, the the yeah. effect went west. Oh, okay. I'm sure they felt. I'm sure they felt it in Cuba. I'm sure. Because Cuba, you can, there's one point at Haiti, you can stand on a shoreline and see Cuba. They're very, very close together. Mm-hmm. Yeah, okay. So um, now your daily work. So uh, tell me about a day, uh, how a day presented itself in your life when you were in Haiti. So you, you woke up and how? <laughs> you, you, you lived in a tent then evidently. Yes. Uh, we had, um, well, at first there wasn't any facilities. We ate meals ready to eat, which are called MREs, which are not bad, by the way. They're not great, but they're not bad. And we had bottled water. Uh, they had dug latrines, um, but there was no electricity, no showers, no anything. And you were only allowed two liters of water a day, two one-liter bottles of water a day. So if you wanted to wash your hair or shave, you were going to be wasting your own water. You, there was no place to do that. Eventually, mess tents went up, showers went up, and all that kind of thing. We still didn't have electricity till almost when I left. So we had no electricity, no television, no radio. We couldn't get Voice of America. We tried that. We couldn't get Armed Forces Radio. We tried that on portable units, but we couldn't get any. Um, and you couldn't use your cell phones, of course, since they couldn't be charged. Well, not only that, my cell phone is not an international phone. I didn't even take it with me because I was told not to because okay. it's only a U.S. phone. Um, yeah. So it would have been That's no... true. No, U.S. phones don't work in other countries. European phones work all over the world, right. by the way. So, um, you know, there was no sense in even taking it. And um, yeah. most of the communications were satellite communications of one kind or another. Uh, I was treated like an officer because I have two PhDs and I'm also a civilian. I was treated very much like an officer. I was saluted, um, which I had to... Did you wear a uniform or did you wear a chaplain? No, no. No, I just wore regular street clothes. Yeah. Um, But they would know who I was. First of all, I was in a wheelchair, and second of all, I was wearing street clothes. But, you know, I would salute. They would salute me, and I'd forget to salute them back or tell them at ease or anything like that. Yeah. And, I, you know, I was always causing problems because I'm not used to that, you know. Um, but the the typical day was we got up. Um, let me do a typical day at the end because it's a little more representative of, of what my day was like. We took a shower. We had salt water showers um, because they were drawing the water right out of uh, Port-au-Prince Bay. But the water had been uh, filtered through a, what they call an osmosis system but it still had the salt in it. And the military has developed bath products, soaps and shampoos and stuff, uh, for salt water. And But you still, even though you had been using this, you still didn't feel really clean because you could feel the salt on you. Went and had breakfast. And then my day uh, was pretty much 15 hours of half-hour sessions just to be there for anybody who wanted to talk. 
And there was but a the American soldiers the, yes. of the American population. Well, any any military. I actually had a couple of Canadians show up uh, over time, and uh, a one person from the Israeli contingent came to talk to me. But there were ten chaplains when we originally got there. Seven of them were sent home uh, for violating uh, policy. So that left three of us. There was myself, a retired Catholic priest, and a retired Lutheran minister. And they were not used to doing ca- uh, counseling. And so I took on the counseling chores, and they did the ministerial duties like the church services and uh, listening to confessions and those kinds of things. Uh, so my schedule was 15 hours a day, and I had 30 positions open. When I started, it was very light. Nobody came to see me. And then I got what uh, a phrase that they all kept saying afterwards was street cred or street credibility. And the number of people who came to see me started growing very fast. I guess people would say, um, well, I want to talk to that chaplain. He's a, you know, he's a real good guy or he's a good listener or whatever. And all of a sudden my sheet, because I had a sign-up sheet outside my door, would fill up. So I would see as many as 30 people in a day. And then I had to get my meals in there and private time and sleep time and all like the rest of that. But there was nothing else for me to do. So the long days, the long hours was no problem because otherwise I'd have just been sitting there miserable, sweating and and yeah. uncomfortable and all the rest of it, you know. <laughs> sweating seemed to be a hobby. We joked about it. We, we said sweating seemed to be a hobby. Did you, you know, lose weight was, during this time? Well, um, I've lost 100 pounds uh, since August of this year. And at first, I lost quite a bit of weight eating the MREs. Once the mess tent opened up, uh, I started eating better meals. But the funny thing was, when I got home, I had only gained one pound. So um, I guess I did better than I thought I did. Yeah. But yeah. you drink a so, lot of water, and you drink you a lot have of water. You have to. That's, you know, of course, in that heat, and you you yeah. need the water. Why did people come to say, what was the, the well, part of their humanity, what was the problems they came to you for? Because basically you did like one-on-one, you know, motivational counseling, more or less, you know, if you think about it that way. It ran the whole gamut. I had some people that came every day after a while. Um, There were people who had been seeing psychologists in the military and were not happy with the way they had been treated. Uh, There were some who came to see me primarily because not being a member of the military staff, I was not taking any notes. And so they had been holding on to this stuff because if they go to see somebody in the military, they have to make notes. And they're afraid yeah, that's that, based that, on your record, so that could be dangerous, of course. Although, you know, seeing a therapist or seeing a psychologist or seeing a, a minister is confidential, even in the military, somebody yeah. is still making notes somewhere. And so uh, they would come and see me. I think that was one of the things that people got around was he doesn't take any notes. He just sits there and <laughs> listens to me and doesn't take any notes. Yeah. <laughs> the other thing was that I listened. I decided on my way in that I was not going to fix anybody. I didn't sit there and say, well, I think you should, I think you should. I had three things that I did. If someone directly asked me, what do you think I should do, I would say, what do you think you should do? And let them work it out because I found 99% of the people in the world that I've dealt with that I say that back to them, they already have the answer. They're just looking for somebody to confirm that. They're not sure enough of themselves and, and what they've decided. The second thing I might say would be, well, if I were in a situation like yours, I might do X, Y, Z. And the third thing I would say would be, I have been in a situation similar to that, and here's what I did. In other words, I never put anybody down. I never said, you should do this. My aide de camp used the word should a lot, and we had a little talk about shoulding. Don't should on yourself. Don't should on others. Don't let others should on you. And one time I came back into the tent, and he had put up a little poster or a little sign above the little desk that they had given me, and it says, thou shalt not should. <laughs> That's good. <laughs> That's something uh, very good, you know, uh, that we all should put up. <laughs> we all should put up, yeah. Yes. 
But, you know, uh, that's something that I've learned as a speaker through the years is, you know, don't should on yourself. Uh, don't could, don't would. They don't really exist. But the fact is, is that I just sat there and I'd listen and then I'd say, well, that's interesting. If that was something I was facing, I think I might do this. In other words, I was not pointing a finger at anybody and saying, do this. Because I found in the past when I've done counseling and I do that, it comes back on me. Um, because everybody is different. Everybody has different needs. And like I said, I think most of the time people have the answer. They just need somebody to say, yeah, that sounds pretty good to me. Yeah. What kind of problems, what kind of specific problems do people in the Army have as opposed to civilians? Is well, there a difference? Most of, the pro- most of the problems that I was listening to were civilian type of problems, um, you know, marriage problems, um, a couple of people, you know, caught up in the American military thing of don't ask, don't tell. Uh, you know, they're they're gay or they're bisexual and they don't know how to handle that. What should I do? Uh, how should I you handle that? You had that this? in the army. Now you had army people who came and said, "I'm gay. What should I do about it?" Did you have that too? Now? Yes, uh-huh, I sure did. And again, they were hesitant to talk to a military counselor. Or therapist, because see that would wind up on their their record. Because of course, of course, the thing the thing is, don't ask, don't tell. Yeah. So you know, by even going to somebody of confidentiality, it could wind up that they have quote unquote told, but they felt comfortable enough coming to me to tell me. Of course. And, and what it, did it was, you tell them? Uh, because this might be a good for maybe someone of the listeners who would like to know. What did you tell these people who were like? I would call them closet gays, and were in the army and didn't uh, kind of come out with it. What did you tell these people? Um, well, I'm bisexual myself, so I've lived a life of of it, but I've never been closeted. I'm, I've never uh, hidden it from anybody. I think people. But that put much... That must have been nice for them to hear, though. Yeah, I guess. That, I mean, I, yeah. it, it didn't. I didn't seem to get a response, but the fact was, I think people talking about their sexuality, it's just one part of your life. There's so much more to you than just your sexuality. And uh, I guess That's a good reply. To... You know, that is a good answer, I think. There's so much more to you than yeah. just and, your and sexuality. I, and I would say, I've never come out, but I never was hidden. I just lived my life the way I wanted to live my life. Um, true to myself in all areas. And if somebody came up to me and said, are you gay or are you bisexual? And I would say, I'm bisexual, but I'm not gay. But I didn't make an announcement of it. In other words, I lived my life, and if it happened to come up for some ungodly reason, then I would yeah. reply to it. But otherwise, I made no issue of it. And I have, I really do have a problem even being a, a, a man, a, a bisexual man. I do have a problem with people having this need to announce it to the world. Uh, you know what? Nobody really cares. Um, you know, this is so true. People really don't care. It, it, it's something that each one feels within themselves. But people really don't care about a lot of things. You know, so we announce to the world, and it's like, so? <laughs> but aren't you also a father, a, a brother, a, a sister, an aunt, an uncle, a child, a parent? You know, aren't you other things besides this? Why are you focusing on this one thing? But the kinds of things that I got talk, people talked to me about mostly were not military related. They just needed somebody to talk to, and I was somebody they could talk to maybe for the first time because they didn't have the, the military thing hanging over them. They were afraid that it would be recorded and used against them at some point. But I had one man come to me. Just um, I can tell you he was a cook. I, I won't tell you his name for confidentiality reasons. But he was one of the cooks, and he said, you know, I just want to express this. I'm getting close to retirement. And he said, you know, we take, we get a lot of complaints about the food in the military. But he said, you know, we really do work very hard to turn out good, good-tasting, nutritional, balanced meals. We work very hard to, to provide, you know, um, good desserts and we make our own bread, and we do all of these things, and we do it with love. We do it because we want them to be fueled up properly to go out and do what they have to do. And I said, I said, that's wonderful. I think it's great that you told me that. 
because then I you know, I'm surprised it. when you tell me that. Too. I'm surprised. Oh, really? They do care because it's like hospital food. You just kind of feel that oh, they just kind of open cans and warm it up, and they couldn't care less. But to hear this from an army cook that they really do it with love and they care—that's very, very nice to hear. You know, it warms my heart. <laughs> well, and, and he says that's true of most of us, you know, in military cooking. But, you know, it's just like being in college. When you live in college and you lived in a dorm and you ate the same kinds of foods over and over and over, yeah, you guys say you complained about it. But the food six weeks later was no different than the food the first week. It's just you got tired of the same kinds of things over and over. But the fact was that the food, I thought, once the mess tents went up, was really good. And the food on the ship was excellent. I mean, you could put that up against any restaurant anywhere. The Navy food was just great. But the fact is is that I went around then and said, you know, give the cook some compliments. Well, then the guy who had talked to me knew, you know, that I had been doing that. So he's offering me all kinds of stuff. Would you like lobster for dinner? Would you like this? You know, I'll eat what everybody else eats. I'll eat what everybody else eats. But the, the fact is is that we don't think about things like that in life. And here was a man who was getting near retirement. I mean, he was uh, going to be retiring soon, who just needed to express to somebody, and he chose me to do it uh, with. Um, and I feel privileged for that, that he just wanted somebody to know that, you know, he cared, that all of the years that he had been cooking and serving and, and so forth, he cared. He cared that every soldier was fed well. Yeah, and that's what kind of amazes me that uh, that he really says that. Well, not that I'm amazed, but it warms me, warms my heart that he says I care about the soldiers. I want them he, to have a good meal. And he said, everybody that's behind the food line, that's true. He said, you know, we get a lot of you know recruits in, and they they start out in the kitchen and they hate it. And he said, but you know, after a while, they they all begin to care. And he said, I always told the kid, if you don't like it here, you can transfer to wherever else you want to go, but give it a try. And he said, I would talk to them about, now, don't you feel good about the fact that, you know, we just were able to give them something extra today or something really good today or something? And he said, I've always tried to talk to my people that way. And I know other master sergeants and other cooks who do the same thing. And he said, "Um, but I've never been able to express that to anybody. You know, I'll tell you this, um, because I know we're running short on time, but I want to make this point. I felt what I did would have been hard for anybody in terms of of heat and you know comfort and stuff like that. I knew I was only going to be there a short period. I didn't know when I left how long I was going to be. Did they tell you for how long you're going to stay? They didn't no, say. No, or, no. They didn't okay. say. They said, as long as you're willing. No, <laughs> course, as long as you last. <laughs> as long as you last. And, yeah. of course, having a wheelchair and, and all of the other things, it was difficult. But I didn't really do anything for them. I was just a listening post. They could have gone outside and talked to an electric post and it been just as good for them. But the fact was is that I felt very privileged and very honored to do this because they had some place they could go. They had an ear, and I was very committed to not trying to fix them, to allow them to work out their own problems. Um, I didn't should on anybody. I don't think I should have done anybody except maybe myself. Um, but I just feel like this is something that I've done that I don't know if I would ever do it again because it was physically very hard. But, boy, it sure was an honor and a privilege to do it, to be there, for them to talk about missing their family or they were afraid or uh, they they were cooking good meals or yeah. they, they were doing a good job and nobody seemed to appreciate it or any kinds of topics. I mean, it was it ran the gamut of topics that it's, people came to uh, share Yeah, and I think we do not... Well, maybe in America you look at American soldiers uh, in in a more personal way. But otherwise, if you look at other countries' soldiers, you know, at the opposition soldiers, we just look at them as as as, as robots with fe- without feelings and so on. But we forget that 
everyone out there in fighting a war has a personal life as well, and they have families, and they have feelings, and they do have hearts. So uh, what we are looking for is really some kind of understanding uh, when we are out there and we feel alone and we feel lonely, that it's very, very important to have this place where you can talk. And uh, I think that's the old idea of confession, maybe also, that you have someone to speak out to. Isn't that something you know has something to do with that that we need someone to listen, and part well, of coaching is of course to have someone who who listens to us unfortunately, with confessional, it becomes a matter of well, no matter what you talk about to some priests or some people who have confessional, it somehow gets turned around to everything as a sin, and so you yeah. need to do penance where with me it is a matter of. I'm trying to build bridges, not build barriers. And so what I'd like to do is just sit there and listen and just say, yeah, I understand where you're coming from. Geez, if it were my, if I were in that position, here's what I might do. It does, you know, I'm not patting myself on the back and saying I'm a really wise man, but I think it does take a certain level of wisdom to sit there and know when to say something and know when to be quiet. Yeah. And uh, if they had 30 minutes with me, they got 25 minutes. And then, you know, I always said, give me five minutes at the end. And yeah. um, that, and but I was always building people up. I was always saying, well, gee, you know, I understand that. I really do. And, you know, there are people who are in similar situations. Or here's how a friend of mine has handled this. Rather than saying, you know, you terrible bad person, you just told me this awful thing, and now you have to go out and do penance. And that's not, that doesn't... No, and this is uh, not the idea, of course. What we have to stay out of is the judgment. And that is, of course, what religion, the Christian religion particularly, is doing. They judge, and you have to repent, and you have to overcome uh, your sins. But uh, I mean this exchange of humanity that we all want to share our problems, and then they feel so much better. And people love to speak about themselves, don't they? They they love to speak <laughs> and just well, know that it, someone is listening to them. It's not just that they like to talk about themselves. There are people with real problems. I mean, they yeah. they are. But there of course, that goes with ones. it. Mm-hmm. That. Uh, but then there are some. Also Sorry, I was looking pro- at the time, and oh. uh, we have just a few minutes left. We still sure. have a few minutes to talk more, but I want to, to just announce that Rick Morgan has a book called The Keys, and um, Rick Morgan is spelled R-I-C, Morgan, like it's, it sounds like. Can they get that on Amazon.com also? To make it easy? Well, I try. I usually send people to my website, which is thegreatkisser.com. The Great Kisser, K-I-S-S-E-R.com. Wow, uh, right how now, could they forget that? <laughs> that's right. That's one of the reasons yeah. I did it. I thought you could be driving down a freeway at 80 miles an hour and remember that one. But yeah, right particularly now, for the chaplain, I think that sounds good. <laughs> the oh, great I, I wear a T-shirt that says The Great Kisser. And believe me, I get a lot of looks with it, you know, like, are you really that great? But anyway, yeah. uh, right now, if they go on the site, if they order the CD, which is the audio uh, book, for twenty-five dollars, they'll get a free copy of the book itself, the textbook. Or yeah. the, the and the book copy. is nice little book. It's a very, it's it's not a thick little. Uh, I mean, it's it, it's a thin little book, um, not uh, even hundred pages. But it has, it's down to the points. You know, you don't have to have big thick books to really get uh, to know the message. You have a lot of good uh, bits in that one, so I recommend it to people. And uh, Well, uh, I'll and, tell you uh, this. It's, it's about simplicity, so how do you write a 700-page book on simplicity? Yeah, well, people do, you know. <laughs> they really do, <laughs> with all I'm the sure many steps. I, I couldn't do that. It's 80 pages no. long. It's written at the eighth grade level so that anybody, just about anybody, and read it and understand it and understand the concepts and the principles and apply them to their lives. It yeah. is, uh, I call it a power-packed life changer. And uh, it's, 
It is a book. Well, on the back cover, it says it's the back of the toilet book. It's one of those things you could put on yeah, the back of the toilet. It's good for that. It's, it's very good for that. And, of course, you use the principles uh, from the book here in your life there in Haiti and your uh, coaching and so on, too, didn't you? So, yes. Um, yes. Uh, we, I think, and it's, it, it's, it's really, it's in yellow and blue, which are the Swedish colors. So uh, <laughs> it looks good here. <laughs> Show so the patriotism, just, Sweden, and go buy the book, right? Yeah. <laughs> yes, and now for my listeners in Scandinavia, I will be in, I uh, have had many ask me, when am I going to be in what country? I'm going to be in Norway in uh, uh, the middle of May, and uh, you can get to know about my activities through contacting lifetravel.com. N-O, N-O for Norway, lifetravel.no. And I will be in Finland uh, at the very end of May and the beginning of uh, June. And again, you can contact me uh, directly at uh, my website, speakingtoyourheart.com. And my books, uh, Constant Awakening, you can get that at Amazon. Dot com or in your closest bookstore, or also who am I and where am I going? And I have to tell you and remind you, uh, my last, my uh, fourth meditation CD is out. You can get it at this point through my website, speakingtoyourheart.com, or you can get it through amazon.com, but I don't think they have posted it yet, a little bit slow in that. So, um, uh, I'd like I'd... to make another commercial, if, if I could, yeah. really quick, yeah. make okay. another commercial. Uh, I'm also a professional speaker. I've been a professional speaker for over 37 years. So any group anywhere in the world that needs a, a keynote speaker or an after-dinner speaker or just a storyteller or whatever, they can uh, go to the keynote speaker, keynote, yeah, the, the keynotespeaker.net, the keynotespeaker.net. They can find out information about how to contact me. And gee, if somebody in Finland or Sweden or Norway want me yeah. to come and speak, I could use a vacation this summer. <laughs> you haven't summer. been there. That's right. And last time I spoke to you, you have just, or you were going to, I don't know, going to or just came back from Hong Kong where you had been speaking. Right. And this is the great part about our work that we can travel the world like uh, like. Uh, this and uh, everyone is, is is open to the philosophy of going to your inner, inner and higher self, and um, that there is something called the God frame within each one of us, and that is what we have talked about today. Now, talk about the people there in Haiti who just wouldn't do anything. Is that what they had lost to contact that inner flame, that God frame within them? a challenging question, but you know, uh, you have to contact I think, that higher self yourself. Well, Haiti is a Catholic country. Uh, the collapse of the Cathedral of Port-au-Prince is a major, major loss to them. But of course, there's the old thing about Haitian voodoo, too. Yeah. So you got a you got a dichotomy there. You might have people who go to a Catholic church, but also go to, you know, uh, voodoo rituals. I don't know that the flame ever dies on anybody. I think that flame is there. No, it, it cannot die. That is your life, you know, the motor that I keeps think, you going. It cannot die, I, but you believer. don't connect with it. Right. I think there's, see, a lot of people use the word soul and spirit as synonyms, and I think it's two different things. And I think that what happens is that people... Uh, concentrate on the soul rather than the spirit. The spirit is the spark within you, the God light within you. And the soul is that ethereal part of you that we live with on a daily basis. But I don't think that they've given up on that. I think it's just that they don't know how to do it, how to, how to reach that. Yeah, um, that's what I mean. They haven't connected, you know. They just need instruction. They just need to open up and that is part well, of the help I, that they need to, isn't it? I, I think they need to learn how to how to do a lot of things. They need to learn how to work. They need to learn how to feed themselves. They need to learn the basics. First of all, they've, they've been putting up these tent cities 
on the sides of, of hills and mountains. And, you know, the rainy season started this week, and they had a horrible rainy season last year and three hurricanes. And you just know that when those rainy seasons and hurricanes hit, again, if they do, uh, all of that's going to come sliding down that hill. And no, that's right. I have to interrupt sh- here because it's over. The show is over live in about four seconds, but it will continue for the recording. So now we can keep on courting, <laughs> talking. Okay, now the actual live show is over, but we can finish this one off before uh, we hang up. So, Rick, I give you one more word. <laughs> I, I think they need somebody to teach them just how to do the basic things. I don't, you know, I, I, I yeah, I, I'm concerned about their spirituality, but they need to just learn the basics of life. Yes, isn't that so that instead of, you know, sending food to people, you send them the grain so they and teach them how to, to prepare the, the ground and put that grain in there so they can harvest it later on and then grow their own food. That is well, the, what I feel we should do. It's the old story of teach somebody to fish instead of giving them a fish. Yeah, exactly. About everything, we should teach them. And that goes also for spirituality. You have to tell them that is such a thing. They don't even know it. Rick, it has been wonderful having you on the show. It it, it took uh, on a very good energy. It was very, very interesting, I thought, what you said. Yeah, I liked it. Thank you so very much for being with me and hope to hear from you maybe another time next year. (laughs) Well, all right, we could make this an annual thing, but thank you very much for inviting me. I appreciate it. Yeah, thank you so much for being with me, Rick. And good luck with uh, many other things that we didn't get into being a volunteer and so on, which we also said we were going to speak about. Oh, there's another show. Call me up and we'll do that one. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, thank you so very much, Eric Morgan, for being with me today at Sedona Talk Radio. Thank you. Goodbye, everyone. And for those remaining, uh, I will just ask you if you would like to look, go to my website, www.activeil, or also it's called speakingtoyourheart.com, for more information. Thank you so very much. Goodbye. Are we clear now? Oh, did you hang up? Hello?